Hello, and welcome to the Euro What, episode number 171 for the week of October 31st, 2022. We are a pair of Americans trying to make sense of the Eurovision Song Contest. I'm Ben Smith, and I'm joined today by Mike McComb. Hey, Mike. Hello. This week, we'll be getting caught up on the news and talking about the long-tail success of Eurovision songs. There's been a lot that's happened since our last episode dropped. Eurovision gods continue to smile on our editorial calendar, so thank you. We feel very seen, and that's appreciated. I guess the big one is that we have our country list. Everybody has gotten their paperwork in. We know who's going to be in the Eurovision Song Contest 2023. And more importantly, who's not going to be in the Eurovision Song Contest 2023. No debuts, no no surprise returns. We're not, it's not... Like, everybody who is competing next year competed in 2022. But missing out next year, we will not be seeing Bulgaria, Montenegro, or North Macedonia. I think in all those cases, it's just a budget thing. Yeah. They're always on the cusp of budget issues, but with how inflation is hitting everybody really hard right now and like uk in particular and trying to plan a budget when you just have no there's no way to forecast what that's what the expenses are going to be this is the first time north macedonia has withdrawn for the contest so they first competed in 1996 they did not compete in 1997 due to relegation but i feel like they have been trying to figure out what they want to do with eurovision anyway so it does not surprise me that they are taking the year off they put together a commission to look at what their strategy has been and how it should move forward. And yeah, it just makes sense this year to take a breather, step back. And that has worked for several countries. It worked for Bulgaria. It worked for Portugal. It could be North Macedonia's turn when they do come back. And then this is the smallest field we've had since 2014. I know a lot of people were kind of disappointed that it's only 37 countries that are competing, but 2014 was a really good show. I was just about to say 2014 was like a real good show. So like maybe a focused energy is a good thing. I think the big concern is that the semifinals are just going to be really small fields. One semifinal will have 15 countries, one will have 16. Yeah, 10 will still advance from each semifinal. So <laughs> Hearts uh, will be broken. Yeah, like much, much harder than usual, I yeah. think. So. Yep, more structure to the contest. Hooray. Also bringing some structure to the contest is Cyprus. They have announced that they have picked Andrew Lambrew to be their representative. Uh, if that name sounds familiar, he did compete in Australia Decides for this year's competition. He finished in seventh place with the song Electrify. He studied music, rose to prominence by doing covers of songs on YouTube. He ended up signing to a label at age 17, and now that he's working with Cyprus. He's part of the Panic Records family. And his parents are originally from Cyprus, so that's where that connection has come about. Of course, with every new entrant that we get, I hop on over to Famous Birthdays to see what sort of delightful statistics we can find out about people. (laughs) Just like, how many asterisks do we need to put after their name for, like, number one? Yes. Yeah, unfortunately, he doesn't have any number ones yet. He is the number five singer born on May 25th. Going through that list, I was surprised to see that number 13 is Emma Marone, who represented Italy in 2014. Nice little coincidence there. And he is also the number four Gemini named Andrew. I clicked through that and could not identify any of the other Andrews on that list. I guess he was robbed of number one? I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) We want to recount Uh. famousbirthdays.com. And then again, structure. We love structure. National finals are starting to really take shape, and it's 
Exciting to see. Spain has announced 18 acts for next year's Benidorm Festival, and there are plenty of familiar names. We have Alfred from their 2018 entry. We have Sharon from Drag Race España, which I have not seen, but hey, that's a thing. She co-hosted the BCM pre-party in 2022. Agone and Famous from Operación Triunfo, and Bianca Paloma from Benidorm 2022. So excited for Benidorm. Spain has completely reinvented itself in the last couple of years. Like, it, it, the whole lineup, it seems like they are taking this very seriously. Yes. And I cannot wait for that to come about next year. Seriously. Uh, Norway is doing something other than what they've done the last few years. Yay! Yeah. I'm still not sure how I feel about what they're doing, but it's not, like, a six-week process. And for that, you know what? We're going to give them a thumbs up. Good way to go, buddy. You're thinking about it. Norway will be three semis and a final this year. And then a wild thing I did not expect to see. And like, I only found out about this because I'm still following Subwoofer on Instagram, which is its own whole journey. But Give That Wolf of a Banana was name dropped by Pete Buttigieg as part of an interview with Chris Wallace sometime <laughs> in the last few days. Chris Wallace asked Pete Buttigieg to sing like a few bars of it. Pete Buttigieg refused, but... That Apparently, is such a mad lib of a sentence. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> name a Eurovision song. Name a U.S. politician. Name a journalist. I have put all of the ping pong balls in the bingo cage, and I'm swirling it around, and I've selected three, and here we go. Apparently, it is a breakfast time favorite in the Judge household. Congrats. Honestly, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, just the way that he was answering the question, where it is that kind of, like, chagrined, you've heard of Eurovision, right? Like, yeah, this just, one song. <laughs> like, the way that you just kind of start talking to your feet when somebody's asking you any follow-up questions. If it were allowed, he would be sinking into his chair, trying to get off of camera. That is the vibe. Uno Voce, per San Marino, is happening, and San Marino has received over 500 submissions. Not sure how many of them are just final, underscore, final, underscore. No, really, this time... Where when you open the files, corrupted so that they can then send you the actual file later. Like a paper. I don't think the submission window is closed. I know that they started going through like some of the auditioners this past weekend. But I think the whole audition judging phase goes through December. Like it, it is a very long process. I think everybody is expected to send something to San Marino. So I need to get on that. Yeah, just like, <laughs> I mean, they're taking their time. They're a very serene republic. And most importantly, Cindy is going to be co-hosting Unavoce per San Marino. I uh, That's appointment television now. Absolutely. Yes. Very happy to see that news. Yes. They know what we're coming to see. And we're coming to see Cindy wear a wig and then throw it at the piano. Finland is continuing with umk and you know what that seems to be working very well for them so i that makes a lot of sense to me they will be announcing the seven acts january 11th and the final will be february 25th festival ikengus has given up the list of participants this year and the winner is going to be selected by 100 percent televote this year which is such a departure from what they've done in the past yeah this is like the trust fall to end all trust fall yes 26 entrants and song titles have been announced the dates and overall format details still kind of up in the air but it's festivali ikengas it's gonna be sometime in december we're gonna find out then and then ukraine also released their long list of entrants their final is gonna be december 17th and one note that i saw in the press release that stuck out to me is that it's gonna be taking place in a bomb shelter yeah i think that is such a brilliant move to just show how dire the situation is, but also how practical a solution that is. It's, I'm not thrilled that it's taking place in a bomb shelter, but from a communications standpoint and mm -hmm. like, the, like the messaging of that choice is 
Oh, yeah, that that just feels like a master's thesis. Yeah, that, that oh yeah, no, like that is just from a visuals perspective. Oh wow, yeah, no, they know what they're doing. Speaking of Ukraine, checking in with Kalush Orchestra. The Kalush and the Rasmus released a collaboration called In the Shadows of Ukraine a couple weeks ago, which has been pretty positively received. And they've also kicked off their North American tour. I'll actually be seeing them this Friday in Chicago. And as part of that tour, they've been hobnobbing with folks and they met Arnold Schwarzenegger. He tweeted about it. They, of course, tweeted about it and uh, posted it on Instagram. And it's like, oh, that, that's pretty neat. They are also included in the lineup for next year's South by Southwest. Also showing up at South by Southwest is Jaguar Jones, who competed in uh, two editions of Australia Decides. Yeah, and I think that list is still growing, so keeping an eye out for any other Eurovision in the wild that may pop up there. Have you been to South by Southwest? I have not. I'm now wondering if I need to head down to Austin next March, just because that's a couple of interesting names. And again, like you said, the they're still planning that lineup and that and South by Southwest tends to be pretty sprawling. Like it just takes over Austin and is all sorts of live music things. I'm not sure that's the first time Jaguar Jones has been at South by Southwest either, because I think after her first appearance in Australia Decide, she was doing like a mini tour of the States. Okay, yeah. And South by seems like the sort of festival that would line up with her style of music. Yeah, like it it would not surprise me if she's a veteran of this festival. Snapchat, which is very relevant to what we're talking about today. So Rosalind continuing to do stuff. I had a bit of Eurovision in the wild spotting when I was traveling for work earlier this month on my way to the airport. The little digital billboard was showing details for Ed Sheeran's upcoming concert dates, and she is part of the tour for that. So just saw her name on a billboard. Opening act for Ed Sheeran, that's a pretty good starting point for U.S. audiences, I think. Ed Sheeran is at the point in his career where he's doing stadium tours, so she's like the opening act for the opening act for Ed Sheeran. But still, that's a very good gig to get. Exactly. And then she's performing on The Late Late Show as this episode goes live, which is her first U.S. TV performance. And in terms of streaming numbers, it is approaching 300 million streams. It hit 275 million as we're recording. So ZTE Buoni is at 349 million. So it could move to number two by the end of November in terms of Eurovision streaming hits. It's just wild to me that it's the that like it placed 20th at Eurovision. Mm-hmm. And it and that is the one that is just, again, continuing to do numbers in America. It's fun to watch the underdog story aspect of this. Like, I keep checking the Hot 100, and like she's still in the lower reaches of it. She might get knocked out this week because of Taylor Swift's album, and that's just going to push everybody That's just going to be down. everywhere, yeah. Yeah, but like she was knocked out a few weeks ago and then came back up. And yeah, it's like in the 80s right now. It's like, oh, this is just really fun to check out that part of the chart it's not always about the number ones and twos you know and she is has also released a collaboration with duncan lawrence as of october 21st which the song is wdia which stands for would do it again it's a smart collaboration since they're both like both rose to prominence in very similar fashion granted he had a little bit more of a boost because of winning eurovision but they both got picked up on tiktok and grew from there and she's more of the lead on the track than Duncan is, which I also appreciate. Chatting about what Snap has been doing lately and this underdog story of coming 20th in Eurovision, but currently racking up major Spotify streams in the United States felt like a nice segue into an idea I've been thinking about since 
September. I've mentioned it many times on our show. I really like the podcast Hit Parade by Chris Melanfi. He talks all about interesting little nuggets in the charts. In September, the episode was about legacy hits. So songs that weren't a number one in the scope of when they were originally released, but have come to be one of an artist's most streamed or signature songs, if you will. Mm -hmm. So things like Elton John's Tiny Dancer is a great example, because that originally charted like number 41, and now it's just like a standard of his concerts. It's something like Etta James's At Last or The Romantics, What I Like About You, especially that last one, because that one peaked on the charts at number 49 and is now just like an 80s rock slash wedding staple. Right. And that felt like an interesting framework that could be applied on a smaller level to Eurovision, since, again, Snap came 20th at this year's contest, but it's popping up all over the place. It's doing great on TikTok. It's on American Top 40. She's going to be on The Late Late Show this week. And Rosalind overall seems to be doing pretty well for having not won the contest. Another one that kind of feels like it lives in a similar space, although it's got an asterisk next to it just because of 2020, is Dothy Frere and Think About Things, because Think About Things did not win the contest, but... Russell Crowe, amongst many other things, helped that song go viral in 2020. The fragmenting of listeners that Spotify kind of helps meant that, like, I've gone to, I've seen Dothy Frere perform twice this year, and that was a very diverse room. That was not just all Eurovision fans. Were there plenty of us in the crowd? Yes, but there were plenty of people who only knew him because the song went viral. I saw him in New York in March. I saw him in Boston last month. Neither of those rooms felt like super Eurovision heavy. This episode is going to go on a little bit of a journey because I started out with the idea of, okay, cool, I'm going to do a bunch of data crunching. Let's limit this to just Billboard style impact. Let's dig into what other songs from the contest have charted and had some other sort of have have gone on to have a longer cultural impact. But there's not a ton of those and they tend to fall into a lot of the same categories. There are a few cases where like we've talked about them before in depth. I'm going to skip Volare for reasons because we've already talked about Volare and it's sort of crazy history. But the more I thought about it and the way I thought about the different ways something can have like cultural relevance, it started feeling like a nice framework for a few other pieces of Eurovision-related flotsam and jetsam that I've been trying to find a show for, where it hasn't necessarily fit like a full episode. But when you look at them together as like the long tail of what a song at Eurovision can do, they fit neatly together that way. So I also just get to clear out like a bunch of drafts from my mental inbox of show ideas. So it's great. Excellent. Yes. Clean up that Trello board. So. Yeah, yeah. So like my only rule with this was nothing I'm talking about has won their given Eurovision Song Contest. I figure at some point we're going to have to talk about ABBA. And I feel like we can give that one a full episode. ABBA had a huge cultural impact. The main place where you see a mixture of songs that didn't win Eurovision having further chart success is from like 1950s and 60s Billboard stuff. Just because that was the era where everybody was covering everybody. So the other song that is the highest charting Billboard hit for a Eurovision song, besides Volare, is Love is Blue, which represented Luxembourg in 1967. The version that tops the Billboard charts is an instrumental cover by Paul Marriott and his orchestra. Vicky Leandris's version never charts stateside, but there are like five separate covers of it that are somewhere on the Hot 100. And some of them are just like very standard, like eventually the Dells do much more kind of Motown slash soul version of it where they sing it in medley with I Can Sing a Rainbow. But there are various Eurovision songs from like the 60s where just again, everybody is covering everybody. Like All De La, this one Italian entry gets covered by the Ray Charles singers and Connie Francis, each of whom released an album that's just like Italian pop songs. 
Connie Francis, come to think of it, I think she also did a cover of Volare. Connie Francis did like a bunch of different cover albums, like Spanish, of Italian. So yeah, so you have like other things like that. You have Say Wonderful Things, which Ronnie Carroll gets fourth in the contest with. It becomes like a chart hit for Patti Page here in the States. Uh, and then one where I think the legacy hit for the artist is probably not going to be their Eurovision entry, but I think... It, oh, this is a single from this group, and we like this group's other song, so like we were giving it some radio play. The New Seekers in 1972 represent the UK and come in second with Beg, Steal, or Borrow. The New Seekers is one of those fun groups, like when like you go see a Motown group now, but half of the group doesn't want to perform anymore, so you have Bill Cohen's whatevers. Because like the New Seekers get formed like right after the breakup of the Seekers. It also just reminds me of from A Mighty Wind, where it's like the Main Street singers, but it's like the new Main Street singers. Yes, <laughs> but. Like, I, as far as I know, the New Seekers are not just, like, witches who worship color. Yeah, they don't have nine guitars on stage. So. Yeah. But yeah, but they're also very much that 70s up with people, fifth dimension style of singing. Beg, Steal, or Borrow gets to number 81 on the U.S. charts. But I think the reason that it does is because before that, uh, they were mostly known here for for singing the full version of I'd Like to Teach the World to Sing. That went to number seven. That song started as an ad jingle and probably should have stayed an ad jingle. <laughs> that was for Coke, right? Yes, that is the song that appears in the end of Mad Men and is just playing over the, the last scene of Mad Men. So you're to think that like Don Draper made that ad. Yes. Uh, spoiler for anybody who hasn't seen Mad Men. Yeah, yet. apologies <laughs> if you haven't seen the end of Mad Men. It's been a number of years you had time. But anyways, that's not the end of things charting on the Billboard charts with Eurovision. There, there are a few things coming up that we'll be talking about. But that's just, again, like it's the 50s and the 60s. It's a style of songwriting and song singing by various artists that is very much of that time and does not necessarily reflect how music is recorded and distributed now. The next thing chronologically, and like this one is maybe a little squishy, but I like it. And I feel like you could present a compelling case for this being one of the references is talking about Cliff Richard's congratulations. And there is a direct connection between what Cliff Richard is wearing at that Eurovision Song Contest and Austin Powers. Yes. Yes, there is. <laughs> like, that is the Austin Powers outfit. You cannot tell me that was not on the mood board. I can't find direct confirmation. And I read three separate interviews today, one with a Bond website that just talks about Austin Powers and the suiting there and the suiting in the Bond films and just generally like what that's lampooning. I found a conversation with the costume designer on the film. Austin suits are all of that that one style of just a crushed velvet or like a red velvet with a little jabot and like just command effing everywhere for Cliff Richard and just nothing. Yes. <laughs> but given the reference points for that movie and just the style, they're, like they're aiming for like the swinging 60s. They're aiming for the pop star style because like that's what Austin Powers is supposed to be. So it makes a lot of sense that they'd be looking at Cliff Richard in 1968 as like the peak of style for him. I feel like I'm entitled to use this one just because if you look at a picture of Cliff Richard at the 1968 contest and then you look at like a standard picture Austin Powers in the in Austin Powers International Man of Mystery, I feel like the one thing that you were going to say is, yeah, baby. Yep. <laughs> Uh, with that out of the way, another song that we mention on the show, and it's mostly me just like calling it the Spanish class song, but like I feel like we do need to give Eris to its flowers. It deserves some appreciation because it finishes second at the 1973 contest, and it's Spain's highest amount of points earned in the contest until Chanel this year. That got 125 points. And that's before the 12 point system. And that's before the 12 point system. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Spain, what have you been doing? <laughs> But what's interesting, so that one is one that crosses over to the U.S. radio charts, and it peaks at number nine. 
And they, they try to do an English version, but DJs only want to play the A side, which is the original Spanish version. That's actually notable. Mosadades are one of only five acts from Spain to score a top 10 hit alongside Los Bravos, Julio Iglesias, Enrique Iglesias, and Los Del Rio. Huh. And what's more notable is that they are the only one of those acts to have a hit entirely in Spanish. Since Los Del Rio's Macarena does go to number one, but it's the Bayside Boys remix that has all of that English stuff grafted onto it. Right. In terms of other notable culture things, I'm pretty sure that it became like a Spanish class thing because it pops up in the movie Tommy Boy. where, oh, where it's like, Yeah. Oh, yeah. Chris Farley and David Spade sing that song. Oh, man. I know I've seen that movie, but that was like back in middle school. It's uh, been a yeah, while. Like, yes. A little while. Yeah. Wasn't it also in an episode of Riverdale? I'm not touching Riverdale with a 10-foot pole. Okay. (laughs) I just look at brief descriptions of what's happening on the show online. I'm like, oh, okay, that's nice. Yeah. (laughs) They seem like good kids. (laughs) They seem like nice young kids. So I'm going to send you a video that's just the milieu of the next song. And it's you're going to recognize this. I may have sent you this before, but you're going to recognize this. And I just want you to, like, luxuriate in just the specific time and place. Oh, yes. Can you describe what I sent you? Yeah, it's a... Commercial for one of those Razor and Tie Euro dance compilations that, oh, fired up. 32 <laughs> huge hits. Yeah. I've got Around the World. Oh, ooh, uh, just a little bit. I have a feeling that's what, why we're here. Oh, Barbie Girl. There we go. Yeah, the thing is, I don't need this album because I already have all of this. <laughs> oh, we've got Blue. Get fired up now and sleep later. Great. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. It's just like a beautiful little piece of cultural ephemera. I, I have resisted the urge to look up how much this costs on Discogs. I have a fair chunk of the songs on this I want to hear. Probably was like twenty nine ninety five because it was two full CDs. But mm-hmm. but also yeah. I'm pretty sure if I look on Discogs, I will be able to get it for like a buck ninety nine plus shipping. Yeah, uh, rude. It's worth so much more. It's worth. <laughs> the memories are priceless. Yes. Uh, but yeah, uh, another song that we have talked about a lot on this, mostly just because I'm mentally hung up on the fact that during the nineteen 19- 96 contest whatever instruments were in the song somehow had to be on stage so they just had these two beige computers yeah (laughs) to represent the synthesizer noises oh yeah and these are like 1996 desktop computers they're (laughs) so they're about the size of like great danes Just, just like a real large monitor in a color taupe that we no longer use This was another one where I'm just like, oh, yeah, we should actually talk about it as more than just that moment, because it's another one where there's some interesting stuff around it. Gina G's dress during the performance is a Paco Rabanne original for Cher that Cher left hanging in the Warner Brothers offices. Wow. Yeah. Wow. (laughs) Yeah. I was not expecting that that little anecdote to pop up. And then, like, the thing that was also funny was in, like, following up on that, just be like, okay, but, like, confirmation, please. Just Mm -hmm. the sentence, the dress was then shortened slightly for Miss G. Yeah. <laughs> just calling just calling her Miss G until Duncan. This was the most recent thing to chart on the Billboard Hot 100. It peaked at number 12 in February 1997. And then more notably, it was also nominated for Best Dance Recording at the 1998 Grammy Awards, which is the first time that category was awarded. Really? Yes. Do you want to know what oh. was nominated alongside? Yes, I do. Okay. Daft Punk's Defunk, Pet Shop Boys to Step Aside, Quad City DJ's Space Jam, which really just hammers home, yes, we are in the mid-90s. Yep. <laughs> and then all of those lost to Donna Summer and Giorgio Moroder's Carry On, which is a very Grammys thing to do. Yes. Yeah. That that seems like a lifetime achievement type situation, which, I mean, is fair. That's an interesting field. I Yeah. Yeah. I think Space Jam and Ua are probably the ones that have any sort of cultural cachet at this point daft punk that's early daft punk and like that album has aged well yeah but i feel like 
Daft Punk has had much bigger success since then. Would I name Homework as my favorite Daft Punk album? No. One more stop on this crazy quilt of ideas on what is long tail success for a Eurovision song is a fairly recent one. The section of my notes is just called Party Cinderellas Are Here. So you remember the 2011 contest, the Estonian entry, Getriani? Yes. Rockefeller Street, yes, I believe the full lyrics are old school Hollywood stars, party Cinderellas are here, they move like computer game heroes. Just normal crimean lit words that you would put next to one another and they make sense. Back when they were a thing, I was watching a bunch of Vine compilations on YouTube because people would put together the best Vines. And you could watch them all in one place because Vines were like six seconds long. Right. And then Vine compilations begat TikTok compilations. And those were less curated, like you'd still get the funny things, but would also get other things or just like, here is the current dance craze. And what was weird is all of a sudden I was hearing Rockefeller Street, but like way sped up. And it turned out that a Nightcore remix of the song's chorus had become a dance trend on TikTok. And that led me down the whole weird rabbit hole. Okay, but what is Nightcore? So great news. We're going to learn about what Nightcore is. Yay. Well, well, great (laughs) news, depending on how much you like speeding songs up by 35%. How old do you think Nightcore is as a as like a named musical subgenre or trend? Like if you had to venture a guess. Since I always hear it in the context of TikTok, it can't be that old. So like 2018-ish? I'm horribly off, aren't I? So it dates back to 2001. Really? Yes, but like in a way where I'm like, okay, like I feel like for this is a sort of like how Eurovision was first used in paper somewhere in the 50s and then doesn't actually become a thing until later in the 50s. Mm. Originally, there was like a Norwegian DJ duo who dubbed what they're creating Nightcore, but that's as part of a school project. I feel like they were creating Nightcore for a long time before everybody else was like, oh yeah, Nightcore. I know what that is. That's a thing that is a known quantity. Inspired by pitch-shifted vocals in hardcore songs, they start taking trance and particularly Eurodance songs and speeding them up to be around like 160 to 180 beats per minute and have more of a happy hardcore rhythm. So they're doing this, but one of the first Nightcore videos to really do numbers is Rockefeller Street. And like, I found a substack that that did really lovely breakdown of this. So I'm just going to read directly from them. Just the introduction of Nightcore to the mainstream channels happened in 2011, when Rockefeller Street, a song performed at Eurovision, received the Nightcore treatment. The golden age of Nightcore started with pop, K-pop, and hip-hop songs appearing everywhere on the internet in Nightcore versions. Anime fans quickly embraced the Nightcore grooves with their loud, brash, lowbrow fun induced by heart-pounding chunks of gooey, candy-coated sounds. Now you can find YouTube channels dedicated to the Nightcore phenomenon with anime and manga characters showing their exaggerated smiles on top of sped up pop songs with cheesy lyrics. So that is the impetus for this. But what happens with Rockefeller Street and Know Your Meme does a really good job of helping explain, okay, but how? So somebody creates the sped up Nightcore version and beat maps it for this online rhythm game called Osu. There is a video of two guys playing the level and dancing to the song that I'm going to grab. I thought I had linked... So the original version of this video that I'm sending you now is posted to YouTube in 2014. Okay. And like, you can probably skip ahead to probably like halfway through to like right before the chorus hits, because the chorus is when it is why it became a thing and started getting copied places. Yeah, he's doing the same sort of chair dancing that I typically do, or it's just, oh, uh, (laughs) well. He was. (laughs) Yeah, he was. But then the chorus hits. Yeah, it's a lot of just, like, arm pumping, swinging side to side, not, like, flossing, but punching the ceiling. Wow, okay. (laughs) Yeah, I hesitate to call it, like, a full dance, but, like, it's at least a half-body dance happening. More more just, like, some fist pumping to the beat. 
Yeah, it's kind of like if you were playing DDR with your hands instead of your feet. We'll have a link to the video in the show notes. Yes. (laughs) Anyway, because this is internet culture now, this generates like more videos and other people are finding this. Osu fans are finding this and recreating the arm dance thing. And like there there are like I have found so many videos of anime clubs doing the dance. Yeah. (laughs) I'm so tired. Oh, your YouTube algo is broken now. Oh, it's it's ruined. (laughs) It's just ruined for 2022. Just love to confuse the algorithm, but he was just watching so much Taskmaster and then things changed. Hmm. What do I do with this? So TikTok picks us up in 2016 and runs with it because it's TikTok. This is what TikTok does. And importantly, starts incorporating other TikTok dances into the movements from the Osu video. And the ones that I was seeing when I was seeing like TikTok compilations were people essentially duetting with themselves were like the main one at the very left would be doing all of the moves and then the previous one would pick up essentially like dancing with themselves but like picking up further moves down the line okay nightcore becomes a thing and nightcore really likes trance things and Eurodance things searches for rockefeller street spike in may 2011 the month when the semifinals and finals for eurovision are they start increasing october november of 2018 and peak in like january 2019 that's when the start of the trend on tiktok is and the announcement of the official showtime challenge in january 2019 is okay and then like a thing i find just very funny is that there's like a small periodic spike is observed every year throughout november and december this is most likely related to the rockefeller center christmas tree which is usually directed <laughs> in november and because we're all just basic people typing rockefeller into the audio on the tiktok app we're like sure this one will do yeah yeah oh wow okay yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then like also just to like, close the book on rockefeller street before we talk about more nightcore stuff getter yanni seems pretty cool with it there was a segment on etv in estonia in 2019 where they interviewed her about it and like she's released in like an official new nightcore version around then too so that you're not just using like the busted youtube version nice yeah, it's, it's just I don't remember that from the Estonian finals, but like maybe I wasn't watching the Estonian finals then. They had her perform, and it was, and like it, part of your brain may have been going, "Why is Getter Yanni here?" That's why TikTok. Ah, awesome. So <laughs> good for her. The other major one that seemed like a nightcore spike is Time Bell's Apollo. Oh, yeah. Really? Okay. Yes. Yeah, the nightcore version of Time Bell's Apollo has sixty million streams. Whoa! Yeah. If anime manga fans like how your songs sound sped up at like by about thirty five percent, you're gonna get a ton of streams if you okay. release an official version. This kind of connects back to Snap, since like the version that was going viral on TikTok was a slightly sped up version, though it's not technically nightcore, since apparently the one rule is that nightcore is really like when it's trance or eurodance. Anything else is just sparkling sped up music. The main nightcore channels on YouTube, and like, there are people who clearly just specialize in just like speeding up all of the Eurovision songs because any major Eurovision song you can think of has a nightcore version particularly in the last few years oh man Uh yeah oh i'm sending you the current winner and it's just real chaotic like it is not it does not nightcore i don't think oh man it sounds like the minions okay i can't i can't (laughs) (laughs) oh yeah like i had i was expecting like alvin and the chipmunks out of that but just because the long history of just like speeding up vocals but yeah no it's minions anyways that is the end of kind of this weird and wild journey through the various cultural things particularly with nightcore i think the reason why i sped up things do better on tiktok is because it makes them high energy that makes sense and it also fits in with it just being shorter and a little bit more bite-sized once i realized that cultural relevance can be delivered in many different forms particularly over the decades so because again we have the tiktok we have most of legacy yeah and just the fact that there were all those covers back in the 50s and 60s and how people are reinterpreting these songs to kind of keep them 
in the consciousness. Yeah, I was very pleased with like, oh, hey, once I put once I have this umbrella for everything, all of these stories fit together. That's going to do it for this episode of the Euro What. Thanks for listening. The Euro What podcast is hosted by Ben Smith. That's me and Mike McComb. That's me. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at EuroWhat. If you'd like to support the show, we're also on Patreon at patreon.com slash EuroWhat. Show notes are in the description of this episode and on our website at EuroWhat.com. If you have any questions or corrections, drop us a line at EuroWhatPodcast at gmail.com. Next time on the EuroWhat, we'll be offering our tips for how to get the most out of Eurovision selection season.